everybody and welcome back to Witch Fix. Today we're looking at another novel in the Bailey Kate series because um, I finally have all of them, guys. I found them for, I'm going to say reasonable prices secondhand, but um, I, I, I found them and I felt flush enough at the time to buy them. Uh, so here we are. Uh, so the last one I looked at, I believe, was Magic and Macarons and, or Magic and Macaroons. God, I made such a big deal about it in the episode. No, I can't remember which one it was. I feel like it was Magic and Macaroons. Uh, but I really enjoyed that one. It was a, like a nice return to the series after I'd sort of uh, gotten really annoyed with the one before it. Uh, I really enjoyed the mystery in that one. I really enjoyed the like character development, some of the stuff that we were getting into about uh, Katie and Declan's relationship. And Spells and Scones, which is the one that I have just finished reading, the next one in the series, may be my favourite one in the series yet, which is great. I love when I enjoy a book. Because that's the whole point of them. Um, and I, I really enjoyed this one. So I'm just going to give you the blurb and then a quick fire round of what I enjoyed about it. And then we'll get into some spoilers. Uh, so this one, the blurb is thus. When the bookshop next to the Honeybee Bakery hosts a signing for a Savannah Radio Celebrity's new self-help book, magical baker Katie Lightfoot is happy to provide some delectable desserts. A big crowd has turned out for the event, curious about the book and maybe to sample some goodies, but the final chapter comes too soon for the author when she is found dead in the back of the store. The prime suspect is a former witch whose familiar was once Katie's own terrier, Mungo. Katie is hesitant to help at first, afraid of losing the little dog who has become so important to her. But after a nudge from Mungo himself, Katie decides to try and conjure up the real killer before the accused witch gets put away for a long spell. Oh, what a pun. <laughs> I couldn't help the voice that I was doing as I was reading that as well. Um, yeah, so this one focuses around a murder that takes place in the bookshop next door to the Honeybee Bakery. I can't remember if this bookshop has ever been previously mentioned, uh, but if it has, I have forgotten everything about it and the owner. Uh, so this is a lady who writes like marriage self-help books and kid raising self-help books even though she doesn't have any kids she proves to be quite a controversial figure a, a radio psychologist who may not have you know qualifications to actually be a psychologist or psychiatrist i can't remember which is which um and yes she is found dead after you know disappearing to sign some books in the back of the store now i liked this book for several reasons one again the mystery was really well put together i still guessed who the killer was but I guessed very close to the end, so that was good. There was a lot of red herrings, a lot of potential other suspects. We find out that the murder weapon is cyanide, which we spend, you know, half the book being told is, you know, quite difficult to come across. And then we find out sort of organically through conversations with other characters. I always love when clues pop up, you know, so organically and so sort of not easy to miss necessarily, but you feel kind of clever for kind of catching on to where it's going. Um, we find out that this is a chemical that is used in a lot of different industries like um, photo development, I think metal work, uh, and something to do with like dyes or printing, I can't remember which. Um, and then we manage to connect several of our suspects to these industries, so it creates quite a lot of suspects. So a thoroughly enjoyable a thoroughly, a thoroughly enjoyable mystery. Um, really good reveal at the end. A lot of different character development with Katie's relationships as well. And this is probably the first book where I liked Katie as a character. Because she can be a little bit frustrating to me, namely her attraction to Steve, which with his like ponytail and beige fleece has always mystified me because he seems to me oily as a second-hand shoe salesman. And I don't like him. So I was quite 
gratified to see that in this book her judgment was really good the way she was like phrasing things and standing up for herself in certain situations was also applaudable and i really enjoyed that from her and we got to see some development in her relationships with local law enforcement who up until now she's just been kind of skirting around and and not really letting in on her little investigations but now you know she seems to be forming relationships with them and it's just just a good enjoyable book all round. so this is definitely a high point for me in terms of the series and now for spoilers. Said spoilers are going to include um, mentions of who the, the killer is. So if you're going to read the book and you don't want that spoiled for you, stop listening now, go read the book and come back. Um, because to make one of the points that I want to make, I kind of have to reveal who, who, the, who, the, who the killer was. So, sorry. Also, I'm going to trigger warn for mentions of like coercion uh, because it comes up in the plot. So we're introduced to our murder victim who is called Dana Dobbs. She's kind of like a Fraser Crane-esque radio therapist who also has books out but is nowhere near as qualified as him. And that reference just dated me terribly. Um, but she, she comes to this book signing late. We're introduced to her entourage, namely her husband and her sister, who is also her personal assistant. And the husband and her both have this kind of belief in radical trust this is like her main shtick her, her selling point of her book the notion of radical trust that you should track your partner's phone and have all of their passwords so that you can access all of their accounts so you can't hide anything from anyone and everyone thinks this is a bad idea but uh, Dana Dobbs is, is committed to it. Her husband, it seems, is not particularly happy. He doesn't look very happy at the whole event. Uh, and then she goes into the back to sign some stock for the bookshop owner and is found to have died of cyanide poisoning, which was delivered by a cup of sweet tea from Katie's Bakery. Uh, so she's dead. Uh, and then we launch into our investigation, which is many-pronged, as usual. It involves kind of talking to... Obviously, the husband, the sister, the bookstore owner, the radio station where she worked. Um, lots of different places, lots of different people. And we also have a new character introduced who might be a returning character. I'm not sure. But her name is Angie. She turns up to yell at Dana at the book signing, as do some other people, about how her advice, quote unquote, ruined their relationships or nearly ruined their relationships and she says that because of radical trust she told her husband of a year that she used to be a witch and he left her so obviously katie is right in there with her little ears pointing out going what do you mean witch and it turns out this lady used to be mungo's owner the katie's dog that she feeds people food to and that he left uh, after she stopped being a witch like she lost her familiar which is quite sad. And so Katie instantly gets jealous of this woman and is like, oh, so she used to own my dog. Does my dog love her more than me? I didn't have a lot of time for Katie's jealousy because, you know, there were other more important things at stake. But I kind of understood, like, the the idea of it. Uh, and we find out that Katie used to be a... Not Katie. That Angie used to be a green witch. She has a lot of experience with plants and therefore could have manufactured cyanide from, like, apple pips or something. Um... And she becomes the chief suspect because she's sort of found with the body, like when someone goes into the back room. She has obviously a public beef with the author and all of this stuff. So she's instantly suspect number one. And Katie's dog is sure that she's innocent. So Katie is like, I trust this. And goes about trying to prove Angie's innocence, much to the consternation of 
the police chief and her neighbour who is a fan of the book. We do see a lot more of Margie in this. Margie is Katie's neighbour and normally she shows up in like one scene in the book holding a child just to be like, howdy y'all, I'm making Coca-Cola cake for my husband who is a long haul trucker. I'm cutesy and backwardsy and neighbourish and then she leaves. But in this she actually has personality traits and, and a reason for being there which was great. Um, and she shows up and she's like been really hurt by Dana's advice not panning out and things like that so that worked really well really enjoyed this character development on the part of margie uh this book also marks the return of steve uh this is like the two-year anniversary of katie arriving in savannah so i feel like it's been like a year since the previous book so we we've jumped forward in time quite a bit because in the last book steve was under the influence of a love spell nearly married some horrible woman who had been helping to murder people and then disappeared He's just come back. He no longer has a ponytail, so his his appearance has just improved like 90% in my eyes. But he's back, and Katie has this reaction to him on page 87 as she sees him in the car, like just driving through town. And that turnover in my chest, well, that was just because I was happy to see Steve was okay. His self-imposed exile hadn't been because of me, at least not directly. But I hadn't heard a word from him since August, and none of my texts had been returned. I'd been worried. That was all. Nothing else. So it feels like this book really ramps up Katie's attraction to Steve, which we haven't really seen since the initial like one, two books because she's been with Declan this whole time. And Steve has just been a guy who occasionally turns up to help with the case and then fucks off again where he belongs. But Steve really comes back swinging in this book because he shows up at the cafe and basically declares his love for Katie. He's like that failed attempt at marriage that I had really proved to me that you're the one for me and if I can't have you I don't want anybody else and it's like calm down Steve that wasn't even a relationship that you chose to be in so you know the fact that it was a failed relationship doesn't really say anything about you it just says that you were had a spell cast on you and it's not your fault but Steve instantly is like I'm gunning for you Katie you're my girl and I'm like fuck off Steve nobody wants you here Things are complicated even further by the fact that Declan proposes to Katie on their anniversary and she handles this like a boss. So um, she isn't sure immediately that she wants to get married. She's like, I really need to think about this. She doesn't do that kind of chiclet book thing of saying yes and then having several chapters where she's not sure. Um, she says that she's not sure and she needs to think about it and he's like, oh, okay, that's disappointing, but I get where you're coming from because he's an adult, unlike Steve. And then she gets various input from different characters who are like, you know, you should marry Declan or you shouldn't marry Declan or, you know, you should do what makes you happy and all this other stuff. So that was pretty cool. Steve, on the other hand. Oh, boy. So Steve proposes like his undying love for... He doesn't propose. Oh, my God, that was the wrong word to use. Steve lets Katie know in a non-proposal way that he has like feelings for her and she's like, but I'm with Declan. Uh, and he has, like, quit the Dragos, that, like, druid group that have, like, no ethics. And he's quit his father's company and he's like, I've given up all of this stuff for you, which is hella manipulative. Uh, and Katie clocks this, which is, you know, again, really gratifying to see in a character that she's not going to let herself be manipulated like this. And it says on page 163, after he says that he's cut ties with his father, she says, for me, the thought made me feel sick with guilt. Good heavens, he was pining for me. But I truly love Declan. 
Sure, there had been a zing of energy between Steve and me since the first time I'd seen him sitting across the honeybee, and Lord know he knew he'd been a good friend to me. Fucking debatable, Katie. But that wasn't something like... That wasn't anything like what I had with Declan. I have to fix this somehow. Steve was giving up an enormous fortune and familial ties to the community. No, wait. Is that my fault? I'd given him no encouragement after I'd started dating Declan. I hadn't asked him to go to the Bahamas or give up everything for me. I'd only saved him from what would have been a truly horrible marriage. And I'd done it as a friend. We reached the honeybee and as we stopped in front, I found myself growing angry. He had no right to pressure me like that. If he wanted to give up everything, then that was his business. And then she says, like, she, she actually vocalises this to Steve and says, I'm sorry you feel that way, I said slowly. And while I don't think you were deliberately trying to manipulate me, it still, feel, it still kind of feels like it. I held up the bag I've been carrying. This is the anniversary card I got for Declan. And there are going to be more of them. Round of applause for Katie tiny claps um i just really like this moment because instead of going down this like spiral where it feels like a lot of other books would have gone it would be like oh no he's giving all this stuff now i need to choose between these two men oh, oh, oh she's instantly just gone like oh he's come back and given up all of this stuff for me i never asked him to do that why is he trying to do this to me and that is the correct response well done katie I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed Steve coming back and not being like romantic hero numero duh. Um, and just being, you know, the skeevy slick pot that he actually is. I will never say that phrase again. I'm so sorry. Um, but I enjoyed him being like treated the way that I think the character came across to me deserved, if that makes sense. And Steve proves himself to be super sleazy uh, in short order. Skipping back a little bit um we get a major clue on page 156 and this kind of kept coming up for me as being the one clue that i couldn't explain away because we get like you know this person had a beef with dana dobbs and they were into photography so they had access to cyanide her husband really needed money and he has access to the agricultural business so he has access to cyanide these sort of things but on page 156 we run into her sister again and i kind of had the sister in my like top two suspects for the whole for the whole novel like she it was always the sister and someone else in the mix so the sister is obviously working as her pa like dana's pa obviously prime resentment territory there and then on page 156 katie catches up with her at the radio station and finds her packing away a book about tarot spells and some candles and her sister is very quick to say, oh, yeah, this belonged to Dana. She was really into this kind of stuff. Katie kept going back to this and being like, yes, but the only person who has anything to do with magic in this case is Dana. And she's dead. And I was like, oh, the sister was lying. <laughs> and I, I think two things kind of helped with this. And neither of them were the book. It was just stuff that I remembered from different things. One is a movie which is based on a Disneyland ride. That I don't even know if it exists anymore. And at some point I would like to do for the podcast because debatably it has witchcraft in it. But it's about like the Hollywood Hotel, uh, which is like cursed. And there's like a child star who's like a kind of Shirley Temple type character. And her sister is Hella jealous of her and does a curse on her and that kicks off the events at the hotel this is a kids movie <laughs> but um i remember seeing as a child and being a little bit freaked out by like the hatred that the sister had for her like starlet sister 
the second thing wasn't really a media thing at all it was just more of my own kind of bias and my own kind of idea of the stereotype of what Dana um, stood for but this whole like radical trust thing this idea of like the perfect marriage and raising the perfect children for me was a shade kind of fundamentalist Christian uh, even though I've, I think you know she does talk about like divorce and how you know she'll she'll let people get divorced if they're not meant to be married and things like that but it just stuck in my mind as like she is not the kind of person that I can see messing around with magic because she's too into like perfection and all of this stuff and she wouldn't want anything like that to do with her image if you see what I mean it just didn't jive for me in my head so I kept coming back to that as there being no other explanation but that these things belong to the sister and that maybe the sister was in love with Dana's husband or was working a love spell on someone to get them to poison Dana for her and that was all you know uh, good stuff uh, I, I I did have my doubts and it was really good in like the setup of the other suspects that those doubts were there but um, it, it was a really nice put together mystery I really enjoyed that and again, um, there's a lot more magic in this book, so I, I enjoyed that as well. We see uh, Angie and Katie talk about magic at one point. They undo a binding spell and cleanse a potentially spelled object. And then we get this little bit of wisdom from Cookie uh, on page 90, 193 to 194. Iris, who is like a, a teenage helper at the cafe, says that she wants to curse her teacher. She's getting into witchcraft, she has some talent for it, so they're sort of talking about it. And Katie has said, maybe give him some cookies with some herbs and stuff in them to, to like make him more cheerful and happy, and then he won't be such a, a dick to everybody. And then he yelled at one of her friends, so she says she wants to curse him, and Katie's instantly like, oh my god, no, you should never do that. And Cookie's like, well, what were you thinking of doing? Because Cookie's gotten back into her kind of... Um, voodoo uh, since the previous book uh, and she's more willing i think now to discuss it with other people and she says to iris uh, after iris says that she wants to give her teacher a nasty rash cookie says how would that help and iris says well it would make me feel better and cookie says well it might uh, and then says it's revenge and revenge like guilt and regret is useless none solve any problems whatsoever and I really liked that as, as a piece of magical wisdom, as a, as a magical lesson to get from this book. Obviously, you can do these things to people, but if it's not going to change their behaviour, if it's just going to punish them and they're not even going to know why they're being punished, is it going to fix the problem or is it just you feeling vindictive? Um, which is a good thing. And it reminded me of like years ago, there was this guy in our class who was like picking on like me and other people. And so we did a spell to make him see himself as others saw him to experience what he was doing to other people and kind of learn from that. And then a couple of weeks later, I walked in on him. Like I went back to get my exercise book and he was being absolutely torn to pieces by one of the teachers like being shouted at and he looked about this big like in in that moment in that experience and I always kind of connected those two things in my head and yes that was kind of like a punishment thing it was meant to you know take him down a peg or two it was meant to make him feel terrible but also there was a lesson in that that he would experience what it felt like to be on the receiving end of something that unpleasant and I never had any problems with him again after that uh, so that was a great little moment. Then we come to Steve and the final dickening. 
So Angie ends up staying at Katie's house because she doesn't feel safe. She's being harassed because, you know, people think she murdered that lady. Um, so she comes to stay at uh, Katie's house. And it's through this occurrence that she happens to come across an object that Katie's been given as a souvenir from Steve's trip to the Bahamas, uh, which somehow ended up in her handbag, even though when he gave it to her, she said she didn't want it, couldn't accept it, and then left it like on the counter so somehow it ended up in her bag and later on it is hinted out that he probably put it there because she thought it was her aunt but her aunt says that she didn't do it and she says oh yeah this is just a present from steve he wants to be more than friends but i just want to be friends um so it's just a you know a present and we've 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 agreed to be friends and angie's like oh ho, 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 this thing is a ferrata and i didn't know what that was so i googled it and all i got was a bunch of stuff to do with tokyo ghoul so I don't know if this is a real thing or if it's made up. Most of the stuff in these books is a real thing, though. Um, even down to, like, what the herbs and stuff mean. So it might be a real thing, but I've just, you know, not been able to find anything on it. But on page 229, she says, A ferrata uh, is like a poppet or a voodoo doll, but it doesn't represent you, as in... Um, like the person receiving it, it represents the giver and it's used exclusively to force the love of another. And Angie admits that she tried to use a spell like this to stop her husband from leaving her and then reveals that she stopped being a witch because the spell backfired on her horribly. And it may have been this one. It may have been a different one. Um, and Mungo even sniffs this and like growls at it. So he clearly has this reaction where it's like, this is bad magic. And although initially I didn't necessarily trust what Angie was saying about this object, it does seem like that is exactly what it is. It's, um, you know, magic. And when Katie tries to drop it because she's like, oh, what am I holding? It like sticks to her hand and she can't put it down. Uh, and it freaks her out and they, they go to like the running stream at the bottom of her garden so that it can like wash some of the magic out of this thing and she can let go of it and they have to leave it in the spring for like a whole moon cycle so that the moon can take the bad magic away and i really really loved that um the whole scene was really great and oh my god this really made me hate steve not just because, you know, obviously he's trying to force Katie to love him, but because he had this exact same thing done to him in the previous book and yet tries to do it now. And when confronted about it, he says, oh, I didn't know it was that. I, I just bought it because I thought it was... I can't remember what he says now. Hang on. Yeah. So right at the end, he she, she like texts him and is like, I know what you tried to do not cool steve and then he instantly blows up her phone so she blocks his number and then he tries phoning her from someone else's phone not cool steve and then at the end of the book he just comes to her house to see her because apparently boundaries are not for steve i fucking hate this guy um and he's like oh no i didn't think that it was like that i didn't think it was like that powerful um he says that he got it from a medicine woman and that it's only a charm but the fact that he knew it was magical in some way means that even if he wasn't intending it to be as forceful he was intending it to be manipulative and katie rightly tells him to take a fucking jump she's just like you're bad news stiff and angie seems to be weirdly attracted to steve in that moment she's just like this is the guy who thinks he needs a love spell to get you like everyone has this reaction to steve and i'm just not getting it um but steve is swiftly sent packing um but i i did i think maybe i just like this book so much because it was so mean to steve it was it really like shopped his character into 
exactly how I felt about him from the beginning. And he stopped being like a love rival and became a kind of villain, um, which is how I'd always seen him because he seemed oily and gross and it wasn't just the ponytail. The Ferrata also gave me like my second clue that it was Dana's sister who was the killer because just after they find about this thing and then they do the spell to get rid of it, they go outside and find a fire burning on Katie's like front lawn or whatever um, with a binding spell in it to bind her magically. And I was like, well, I know this isn't Steve because the book's trying real hard to make me think that it's Steve, but I don't think Steve would do that. He'd be trying to make Katie love him. He wouldn't be trying to hate, uh, trying to bind her magic because... The thing that attracts him to her is the fact that she's a witch and she's a magical person. That's why he loves her, uh, because she's so powerful and a light switch. And uh, so this binding spell has to be coming from somebody else, has to be coming from like the killer um, or, you know, the other an uh, antagonist of the story, which means that they're a magic user. And because Katie keeps saying, like, but the only magic user is Dana, she's dead. It's probably Dana's sister, who's the only other person we've seen holding a spell book. So I'm not mad at it. The book gave you hints so that you could work it out, but it wasn't stupidly obvious. It was great. It was a perfect balance. Loved the Steve hate. Really enjoyed that. Really looking forward to the next three books in the series. Um, I think I'm on potions and pastries now. And then the other ones I've got are cookies and clairvoyance. And then the next one after that is called witches and wedding cake. Um, so guess who accepts whose proposal at the end of the book? I bet you won't guess. It was just pitch perfect. Um, it's it's definitely worth reading all of the other books so far in the series to get to this one. I am really enjoying the series, even though I do say like some negative things about individual books and little individual niggling things, and we won't even speak about the Eclairs one. But I am enjoying the series a lot, and I'm really looking forward to maybe dipping into another one by the same author, um, which is mentioned at the back of this one. It's the Enchanted Garden Mysteries. Um, so the Enchanted thing makes me think that maybe we'll also be dealing with some witchy stuff. So I'm, I'm happy to dip into that one once I finish the bakery one. But in the meantime, if you've got any other recommendations, do drop them below. And don't forget to check out the links in my description box as well on YouTube and on the um, podcast version. I, I hope they'll be clickable over there, but if they're not, copy and paste them you're not a boomer you know what you're doing um and and you can pre-order my new book which comes out in june you can buy stranded for 99p uh which came out uh, last year now and also have a look at some of my self-published books which are um mystery stories uh, a mystery story about magic and a story about a runaway who encounters evil witches uh, in the meantime i'll see you in the next episode bye